0: Welcome to this week's edition of the People Progressing podcast, and this is going to be a really, really powerful show. Um, I have Preston Adams on today, and um, we're gonna we're gonna dive into some deep subjects about our youth and and uh, how we can help our youth more today. And I'm just really excited to have you on, Preston. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what you kind of did as a kid, and and some of those things?
1: Well, Joe, I'm a I'm honored and privileged to be a part of these conversations. I really am. Um, <clears throat> for anybody to listen to my story or the story of my young people, it's it's really a privilege. So I appreciate you for having me. Um, a little bit about me. Grew up, uh, born and raised in Aurora, Colorado. Um, my, my dad was born there and raised there. My grandparents or my grandfather taught in Aurora, my dad taught in Aurora, so we're kind of Aurora babies. My wife is from Aurora, so yeah, we're, we're about it. Um, growing up, um, being the son of two educators, school was always really important, um, and then my dad coached football and baseball, so <clears throat> athletics were always kind of a part of our life, and um, So I grew up focusing on those two areas, really focused on doing well in school and doing well in sports. Um, Played football, baseball, basketball uh, through middle school and then in high school, really focused on baseball and basketball. Played those all four years of high school. I have two younger siblings, so I'm the oldest. So I have a little bit of the eldest traits, I think. Um, Yeah, I mean, grew up, you know, fairly privileged. I mean, you know, both parents are teachers. We didn't make a ton of money, but really privileged middle class. And, and um, like I said, my, my parents taught and my dad taught at um, Hinkley, which is kind of on the north side of Aurora. And so I also got to experience some more um, diversity and got to see some more kind of poverty and some things that like, we just didn't experience. And um, I just think that kind of just, initiated the trajectory for my life in, in a sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I was a pretty shy introverted kid. Um, and so I found my place um, really finding acceptance in, in being a good athlete and being a good student. I really um, made that kind of my my teenage years is like how can I be the best student I can and, and when I went to Grandview High School in South Aurora and, and when you go to a school like Grandview where it's 3,000 kids um, pretty prestigious privileged um, both sports um, so athletics and academics it's it's not a question of if you're going to go to college but where and in my parents like I said being educators it was always about where are you going to go to school so really did well in school did well in sports um and for the most part stayed out of trouble which is it's really fascinating that I'm in the work I'm doing now but um yeah like I said I kind of stayed out of trouble and and, you know growing up so that's kind of my my teenage years um yeah
0: and then you then you went up to the University of Northern Colorado and I think this is kind of interesting because you majored in mathematics is that right were you were you planning on becoming a teacher as well
1: So I started at the University of Denver my freshman year Um, I got a pretty significant scholarship to go there and and DU is a really good school and so it was like you know let's try it out and um, great school DU is the environment the atmosphere wasn't a good fit for me Um, and when I was at DU I really didn't know what I wanted to major in. you Know faith, my faith has been a really big part of my life since I was about 15, 16. And so I was like, Well, maybe I want to be like a youth pastor. And and you know, talking to my dad, he he taught business and he was like, Well, go into finance, make a lot of money. And so I had no idea. You know, I'm 18 and I'm naive and whatever. And so listen to my dad. And I started taking some business classes at du. Hated it. They had a great business school. I hated it. Um, I took a sociology class at du and my eyes were just like, it was deer in headlights. I just, some of the stuff we were talking about, you know, considering once again, privilege and racism and and various aspects of just the world. And I was like, "What, what is going on? And my world was kind of rocked. And I also had to, it was a course where you also had to volunteer. So you had to take the class and then you had to volunteer. And so I actually was tutoring kids in the housing projects in Denver and just really once again, rocking my world. So I left DU my freshman year, went to Northern Colorado, Um, still not knowing what I wanna do, but like this, once again, this trajectory of like, well, maybe I wanna work with like at-risk kids. And so I was like, well, how do I do that? Like, I know once again, just naive of like, well, how do you work with those kids? And I was talking to a friend and and, uh, even my parents, like being a teenager and both parents being educators, I was like, I will never teach, never, ever, ever, ever. And then I got to UNC and I had a friend that was going through their education program. And he's like, well, be a teacher. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe I could be an inner city teacher. And, and so he was like, do math. Like, you're really good at math. And um, so I did. I majored in math and I was already behind because I had transferred. So I didn't go through the education program because they were like, well, math teachers are so needed, especially inner city why don't you just go through the math program and then you can get into like an alternative licensure and maybe like get your master's or whatever. So I did that. I graduated in four years, got my degree in math. Um, yeah. So, it, it, and I, I actually minored in sociology and then that took me on a trajectory. I got a teaching job right out of right at a, um, at a school. And I was at a, at a school in Park Hill in Denver, North Park Hill. And it's, you know, a traditional African-American community. Um, and now doing the work I'm doing, it's a traditional blood gang neighborhood community in Denver and our school is a charter school, is a new charter school and 95% kids of color, 95% free and reduced lunch. Um, and I was just thrown to the wolves. I had no educational background. Like, like I said, I didn't go through the educational program. So I didn't student teach. I didn't take any like classroom management classes it was like, here you go. And so I had a trial by fire, but I loved it. So that was kind of my initial job. But, but at then
0: school. you, then you went and got your, your master's um, in urban ministry. Tell us a little bit about that. What is urban ministry?
1: Yeah. Um, so like I said, my faith has been a big part of my life um, since I was about 16. And so I'm teaching and I'm realizing um man I love these young people so much I really do but there's so much more to life than just like how much math you know especially for my young people who are like uh, we call it survival mode they're in survival mode 24 7 yeah and so um so they're like well where am I going to get my next meal and you know my brother was just shot or my dad or mom is in prison and so it's like and then I'm expected to get them to learn algebra which once again it's good but at the end of the day they're like I don't care you know so all that to say I mean I was going to seminary at the time and um and I was really feeling a call to like work um in a faith-based environment with the same population and so I actually I kind of um went to a couple different seminaries I was thinking about counseling and I didn't do that and so urban ministry really is like how do we do ministry how do we um you know, provide faith-based, um, ministry to, to specifically young people in urban context, and how do you do it in a really honoring and glorifying way that's, um, that doesn't do more harm than good, and so that's kind of my master's was in urban ministry, and I've been a part of, um, it's called the Vuli. It was previously called the DeVos urban leadership initiative. It's another kind of urban ministry based leadership program. So I've been a part of a couple of kind of urban programs, but yeah, that's, that's my urban ministry.
0: So the, then you took the leap to get out of teaching and go into serving um, at risk youth. Is is that fair to say that? Um, yeah. I mean,
1: I, what we say and a, a lot of the terminology we're trying to move it because at risk is a really demeaning term, but for people, it helps them understand. Right. Mm -hmm. But we don't call our young people at risk. We call them high risk at risk is a kid. That's like, they're kind of dabbling, right. They're on the, they're on the border of like maybe getting in trouble, but like their life trajectory could like really change. Um, That's not our young people. Our young people are high risk. They've already done it. They are the risk they've, they've been there. They've done it. They've been gang involved. They've, committed crimes they've they're, they've been in and out of juvenile detention centers so our young people really aren't at risk they're high risk but back to your thing yeah I taught for five years I taught um, at that school in Park Hill for four I taught at an alternative school for two actually I taught for six years um, so I taught the alternative school for two um, all the while I was volunteering with a couple organizations. And when I took the jump from education, I became the chaplain at um, Lookout Mountain Youth Services Center, which is Colorado's long-term committed facility for boys. So this is kind of young men that are um, a little bit older. They've been through the systems, whether that's the Division of Human Services, foster care, They've been to other detention facilities. They've been to maybe treatment facilities. They've been to group homes. Like, this is lookouts kind of their last shot. This is the state's highest risk young men. Um, and they can be there up until their 21st birthday. And so, uh, at the time, the average age young person I was working with was like 17 and a half. Um, so anyways, I was the chaplain there when I took that jump. Yeah.
0: And what was that like? What was it like being in that facility? You're pretty much there on a daily basis, correct? What was it like being in there? Um, Give us a picture of what these kids go through on a daily basis at, at that facility. At
1: that facility, for sure. I mean, my young people have changed my life. So that that place... I still go to that place um, on a weekly basis. It's sacred to me. It really is. It's a sacred space. Um, you know, Lookout's been on the news from for some really negative things that have happened, but um, I just, there's so much beauty in that space. So anyways, um, a young, a young man at Lookout, and They have they've actually renamed it to Calm, but a young man at that facility, like I said, we've had young, young people that are 14 and they, they're going to serve what we call juvenile life. They'll be there till their 21st birthday. So you're talking about a young person that might have on average, the average commitment when I was there was about two and a half years. So you wake up, um, you do what they call hygiene. So you, you know, brush your teeth, shower whatever. Um, you get ready for the day and then you, they have to pat you down before you go to school. So they pat you down and you typically you're in a room, you're in a cell. I mean, this is jail. This is, this is youth prison. Mm -hmm. So you're in a cell by yourself or with one other person. So they're, you're wearing the clothes of the facility. They're patting you down. They're checking your shoes before you go to school, making sure you don't have any contraband. So you're making sure you don't have any drugs or notes or, you know, weapons or whatever. So then you, you know, you're escorted with, you know, you're on a pod or a unit. And they had, at the time I was there, five units. There was 150 kids there. So, you get escorted with your unit to school. You get walked there at about 7.30. And then you go to school like a normal teenager, except, you know, in the school, you have 10 security guards. You have um, maybe only like six, seven kids a class. You're taking normal classes. Um math, science, you know, English, uh, social studies, they have credit recovery. If you graduate, I mean, you can get your GED there. If you graduate, they have post-secondary options like construction or screen printing, or um, they have a barbering program, which a lot of my young men have gone through and actually gotten licensed as barbers. So um, a lot of post-secondary options. So you go to school, 7.30 to about 2.30, and then at about 2.30, they do treatment groups. So they each young man at that facility has a therapist. They have to see their therapist weekly, and then they have to be a part of treatment groups. So those could look like drug and alcohol or negative peer associations or um, transition or healthy sexuality or victim empathy. And so you have to go through these therapeutic groups and they they rotate them, I think, quarterly. And you have to pass a certain number of groups before they'll, they'll kind of let you... Um, Transition from that facility. So anyway, 7:30 to like 2:30, they're at school, 2:30, 3:30, 30, they're in group. Then at 3:30, they'll go back to the unit. Um, they'll go into their room, they'll get locked down for about an hour. Um, the team on the unit will debrief what happened in school. Hey, was there a fight? Or who was struggling, or who needs extra support tonight, or hey, you need to be aware of this or that. And then at about 4.30, they start like recreation and they start um, dinner. So you'll have a unit that'll go to rec. They might play basketball or softball or go work out or whatever. So they'll do rec. Each unit will rotate, do rec. And then other units will go to dinner. Um, And then they'll kind of throughout that night from about 4.30 to 8.30, it's, it's rec, it's dinner. And then it's like they might have a little bit of leisure time on the unit. And then they're getting ready for bed. And then
0: they wake up and do it all over again. So the hard part for you or the, the there's good parts in probably really difficult parts. What are, when someone, a young man, I don't know, is it graduates from that program? Um, Is that yeah. a good, good day? Is that a, I know some of them go on to do great things and some of them, uh, I know yesterday you had a hard day. Um, yeah. is, is, tell us a little bit about that, the end result of the program.
1: Yeah. Um, the hard thing is that uh, the young people get supported at the facility. Um, the facilities aren't perfect. You know, there, there needs to be a lot of what we're saying of juvenile justice reform reform, just like there needs to be a lot of prison reform. There needs to be a lot of justice reform, criminal justice reform in our country. Um, So the facility is not perfect, but they do get supported. Like I said, they have a therapist, they have a parole officer, which um, while they are there at the facility is called their client manager. So they are coming in on a monthly basis, meeting with the young person. They're meeting with their therapist. They're meeting with the family and any other support. And they meet monthly to talk about, Hey, how's it going? You know, they have a level system at the facility. So it's like, if you do certain things, you can move up in levels, which gets you more incentives. Um, and so they have the highest phase would be an Eagle and they have basically four phases. And if you're an Eagle, you can have like a TV in your room and, and you get a lot of, once again, you get a lot of perks with that. So you have a client manager, you have support. Um, and then, you know, as, as young people are about, um, I mean, we start thinking about about six months out, but really it's about three months out where we're talking about transition. What's transition look like? Where are you going to go? Some young people, they can't immediately parole because of the severity of their crime. They have to step down to a lesser secure facility. So it might be, hey, we're gonna go, what do we think about this facility? Do we think that's a good option for you? If they can't parole home, um, then we're talking about transition of like, what are you gonna need to be successful when you transition? The hard thing is that you go from, let's say a young person is at a facility like that for three years, and then they transition And then, and here's the thing is that um, I try to educate people, our young people, there's a stereotype that our young people don't want to change, like if they're gang involved or um, they have addiction, right, they're addicted to drugs or whatever the circumstances, they don't want to change, they're just bad kids. No, I don't, I don't believe that personally. I don't believe in good and bad people. I believe all people are good. We just make poor decisions based upon a lot of different things. And so the stereotypes is that our young people don't want to change. They really do. Um, They might tell you they don't want to change, but they do. And that goes back to their families. Like a lot of these families are, once again, they're in survival mode. They might be living in poverty or um, they might be getting involved themselves or struggling with addiction or incarcerated themselves. And so you're going to send a kid back to a community That might not be as supportive, not that they don't want to be, they just don't know how. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, they'll have their parole officer and they might have a therapist in the community and they might have a mentorship, which is stuff that we do. Um, but on average, a young person has to complete six months of parole. Well, after that six months is over, everybody's gone. Um,
0: and they're they're back in the community that kind of, yeah helped them get there in the first place. Yeah. Is that so fair actually, to say? Is that?
1: Yeah, it is. And and so you you're talking about like three years of their life where they're like really intensely monitored and supported. Once again, it's not perfect, but then they're back in this environment. And, and a lot of these communities, once again, I don't want to demonize the community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the communities are plagued by once again, what I, you know, what I try to help people understand is like systemic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so with these systemic issues, you get marginalization and you get poverty. And with those two things, with poverty, mental health, trauma, and systemic policies that continue to marginalize these communities, what you get is crime. Yeah. And so I don't want to demonize these communities. These right. communities are beautiful, beautiful communities, um, deeply cultural values and hardworking people. And um, but you get you do have crime and you have addiction and and so our young people are put back in an environment where um, they are continued to be re-traumatized or they're continued to be um uh you know asked to like continue to do the things they did before or Mm -hmm. they go back to the community and they can't get a job because people don't want to hire them because you know now they have a record um you know there's so many things that are there's so many barriers that our young people face from getting sustainable employment that then they're like well I could go sell drugs and I can make a $1000 today why am I going to go work and make $15 an hour you know and so it's it's that pull too um so yeah it, it, to your point it's when they leave the facility I always want them to leave but at the same time there's this real nervousness about how are our young people going to be given the resources and the support they need to be successful. And that's the thing that our country is really lacking right now. And I think part of it once again, is to this demonization of like, well, they don't want to work hard or, you know, there's like a lot of trigger words of like, well, they just want to live off of welfare or unemployment. And I'm like, it's just the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah. Our young people work really hard, really, really hard. Like I said, the odds are just really stacked against
0: them. So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I used to say this all the time. A lot of our young people are the product of their environment. And, you know, my environment was much like yours. My dad was a teacher and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, I, I never even dreamt of having to go through any of those problems that you just described. And a young person coming up through those problems and those situations, it's, it's really hard for them to break through break away from that isn't it
1: oh my gosh it's and that's the thing that people don't understand they're kind of like in the faith-based community a lot of people are like we'll just pray harder or like go to church more or whatever and it's like that's not solving their problems mm-hmm. and for the lay person that comes from privilege especially people that have kind of quote-unquote made it out They sometimes can be the worst because they're like, well, I did it. I worked hard and I got out. And I'm just like, that's not everybody's story. And what we try to really educate people on is like the really the impact. Trauma is a word that's um, almost overused right now, but it is a very real thing. And what happens to the brain of a young person when they're traumatized is unbelievable so to tell them just try harder their brain literally can't, can't do it. rewire itself right now mm-hmm. and 50 percent of the young people that we work with they are clinically diagnosed with PTSD the same PTSD that our war vets come back with my young people have that and so the same empathy that we showed to war vets we should still show it to them mm-hmm. and the same resources that they need when they come back which a lot of them don't get we still need to provide it It's the same thing for my young people. It's the same exact thing. And so when we look at war vets that struggle with addiction or homelessness or whatever, it's the same thing my young people struggle with because they are in a lot of times warlike environments through emotional, physical abuse or through violence on the streets or through addiction that they see. So um, there's a study called the ACEs adverse childhood experiences and it really it speaks to the trauma that a person has experienced as a child and it's ten questions and the the more yeses it's a yes and no question each time the more yeses you say and the higher your score is because it's a one through ten scale the more trauma you've been through and the majority of our young people they've experienced eight nine or ten of those and me when I take that test I can maybe say one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so it's just, yeah, the experience, to your point, the experiences that I went through don't even compare to what my young people go through on a daily basis.
0: Amazing. I I want to go back into the trauma just a little bit, because I, I don't think this is one of the things I've had to learn and it's been completely eye opening to me, but the PTSD from trauma, and I want people to really understand what you just said. I want to go back over it. Yeah. The PTSD that war veterans have is the same PTSD that many of our youth have because of some type of trauma that they've gone through in their youth. Can you kind of describe some of those types of trauma?
1: Oh, yeah. We talk about complex trauma. So we, um, there's layers to trauma. Um, you can't get diagnosed really with PTSD unless it's like a absolutely tragic horrific one time event you can right but a lot of our young people they're repeated trauma so it's not like they just um you know it's not like they just saw their mom uh shoot heroin in front of them right like this might be every day they're seeing this right so it's repeated it's complex because it's layered mm-hmm. right like i had a, I'll, I'll give an example i had a young man who i'm talking to him and he goes Um, once again on a faith-based perspective he says to me Preston because I'm the chaplain at this facility at the time so I'm seeing as the pastor and he goes where was God when my mom at nine years old gave me meth so you're talking about complex trauma because not only at nine years old is he being required to smoke it but his mother the caretaker the one who's supposed to emotionally physically support him is the one giving it to him Mm -hmm. so you can only imagine what that does to a young person's brain. And he was so mentally ill. You know, he's dealing with such mental health, that he had to go back and forth between Pueblo Psychiatric Hospital, because he was always trying to uh, commit suicide, because he just couldn't deal with the trauma he experienced. I mean, we have young people that um, put in cages when they're kids, Uh, we have young people that uh, severely abused by parents or foster parents. Um, I had a young man I was really close with that, you know, did watch his father get killed in front of him. Um, I had, you know, young people that were, I, I can't tell you how many of my young people have been shot, almost died, have shot other people, have been stabbed. Um, you know, so, so it runs the gamut between abuse and violence and drug addiction and all these things. I mean, sexual abuse. How many of our young men, not just young women, our young women, it's, it's astronomical trafficking and all of that, but our young men being sexually abused, raped, molested, specifically with family members. Um, I remember a young man where the mother was convinced that he had been sexually assaulted by her boyfriend. And this is really tough, about six, three, huge young man. And we tried deeply to like really get him to open up and he just never would. And now he's in prison for 40 years. And, you know, so it's those things that like, once again, I've never in my life had to even think about experiencing some of these things, but like what it does to a kid's brain or any person, but specifically a kid's brain completely rewires it. There are so many studies. I mean, people could literally just Google a PTS brain versus a normal brain and the scans just show you right there, just how, Astronomically different, they look.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, and it's so important for people to understand that. Um, you know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't understand it until, you know, I've had to d- kind of deal with it a little bit. And it's, it's, um, the, the sad, the hard part is, and I know you probably deal with this in your own emotions, is the hard part is it's not the kid's fault. Yeah. In most of these cases. And, you sit there and I, I, you look at you and you look at me and how we grew up and we never even thought about any of yep. that kind of stuff. Yep. And yep. to see a kid have to deal with that yep. at such a young age and they're so innocent. And, and that's the hard part that I think people really, really need to understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, back to my initial statement, I think people... Sometimes look at me and they're like you enable young people and I'm like no I never do. Yeah. Yeah. You know I tell them all the time like and they know they will tell you straight out I made a bad decision. You know I'll, I'll give a great example one of my guys who just so proud of him he makes me so emotional. I mean he's a barber, he just had a baby, he's being the best father he can be. Um he's still with the mother of his child. Um you know, he accidentally was in a car accident and somebody passed away and it haunts him. But the, what we call is restorative justice. He himself, about a year and a half ago, he's, he was out on parole. He went to the mother, cause this was his best friend. He went to the mother of the, his best friend who passed away. And he just said, I'm so sorry. Like I made a bad decision that night. And, and I just, I, I want you to forgive me. And two weeks ago they had a a five-year memorial for this young man that passed away and he was the first one invited and the whole family so you're talking about the the young man that committed the act that got this young this other young man to be killed and the family's embracing and that's restorative justice Mm -hmm. so you know for us to say like it's our young kids fault yeah they make poor choices they really do And and we talk about all the time. I'm like, hey, you know, how are you forgiving yourself? How are you also asking for forgiveness? It's victim empathy, right? It's understanding that you have victimized a community, not just one person, but a community. And how are you recognizing the way you victimize other people? Mm -hmm. But in order for our young people to stop victimizing people, they have to understand how they are victims And out of their victimization, they have hurt others. So it's because of the trauma, it's because of the abuse, it's because of these things that happened onto them that they have made poor decisions, right? And so we want to stop this pattern of victimization and we want to to get them out of it. And so it's not their fault. They have to recognize that they have been victimized. What is their fault is making better decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, But in order to do that, they have to get mentally healthy, right? We have to help heal the trauma. We have to help with the mental health, right? So many of our young people suffer from depression and anxiety, severe depression and anxiety. So it's like, how are they getting healed with so that they don't keep victimizing people, right? So we're, that's what we're trying to do is like, we want you to get healing so you can be transformed and transform your family and
0: community. And I, I think it's hard for some of these young people sometimes to get out of that cycle because I think once they do something, now they start living in shame. Mm. And that shame piece mm-hmm. just kind of keeps going over and over. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough yeah. anyways. I'm, yeah. you know, and that shame piece is one of the major obstacles I think young people have in getting out of that cycle that you just talked about. Would you agree with that? That's a great point. And that's a,
1: not a great word, but it's a great word to use. And I think the shame creates hopelessness.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Um, no doubt. So my father, or not my father, my hero is a guy named Father Gregory Boyle. He's out in LA and he runs the most successful gang intervention program in the world. He's written two books. He's, go check him out. But he says, you will never find a hope-filled gang member. Gang members are always hopeless, Mm -hmm. right? So in that shame and also the inability, what I talk a lot, once again, survival mode, I share with people a lot that like our kids can't see past today Mm -hmm. where, like I said, at the beginning, when I'm in school and when I'm 14, it's not about, are you going to graduate high school or go to college? It's where are you going to go to college from day one? I step foot in Grandview.
0: Yeah. You know
1: that your GPA matters. Yeah. So I'm thinking five years ahead. Yeah. My young people think about today. Yeah. And so it's this sense of hopelessness where they're like, Preston, I don't have hope for yeah. me at 20. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. And this young man that passed away, who's like a little brother to me, it was this mentality of like Preston that I don't have hope for my future. Yeah, I really don't. And, and I tell people a lot regarding this young man, like the damage had been done at 13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. The trauma he went through right at that age, it was so much, so fast in so many different instances. He was stabbed. His grandfather passed away. He was an incredible athlete, was already getting scouted at like 13 for football, breaks his ankle, bedridden for like six months. Um, all of, his dad's not there, you know, um, all of these things happening at once for a 13, 14-year-old damage had been done. His brain's rewired and he's like, and so even though he wanted different I have videos of him sharing how he's like, I want to open up a barbershop for at-risk kids. Like he has, his dreams were for different, but it was this hopelessness of like, I don't think
0: I can do it. Wow. That's, I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, let's, let's get in. Cause we can kind of continue what we're talking about with you explaining what you're doing now. And you're the co-founder of fully Liber- liberated youth. Um, yep. And it's a new thing that you have, pretty recently just started and i want you to explain a little bit about that i'll just i'm going to say this preston desires to see a just equitable inclusive and anti-racist society one where his youth are leading the way forward and that's kind of your mantra and i just want you to explain what fully liberated youth is and how you started this and and, and what your mission and goal is with this
1: Oh, I mean, we could talk for hours. So I know. Let me, let me be, I know. Let me try and be concise. Um, like I said, my young people have changed my life. They've changed my perspective on life. Um, you know, like I said, there there are systemic things um that have happened in our country that continue to happen. And um y- why did we start fully liberated youth? because we want our young people yeah like i said that we want them to lead the way forward we we believe that they are the most incredible this young man that passed away i tell everybody he is the most charismatic person i may have ever or will ever meet and he's being demonized by the media and and you know it's not okay so i'm not going to say that's okay it's not okay and so what we're trying to do his family and those that know him it's like we're trying to change the narrative he was a father of two kids incredible father, incredible father, incredible friend, he would give you the shirt off his back. Um, We want those young people to not die in the streets. We don't want them in prison forever, and we want them to radically change our nation, and they can. And so what we want to do is come in in kind of this multifaceted way, and that's, like I said, first step, is healing our young people need to be healed from the trauma they've experienced so you know one of the first things is therapy we have licensed therapists even focused on like EMDR trauma specific therapy Um, we have mentors mentorship is a huge thing for all people I'm such an advocate of you know I have multiple mentors Um, our young people just need positive supportive people in their life so how do we build this community of healing around them um, and then from there, it's resourcing them. Once again, our young people just lack, they've been under resourced. So, um, how are we not getting them jobs, but careers? Our young people don't need jobs. Like I said, a 15 hour job is not going to do it for a little bit, but they'll go sell drugs, they'll go rob a house. I mean, they're, they're just going to make money. Yeah. yeah. So, we need them to get careers and careers that are um, attainable. So, how are we resourcing them with whether that's finding them housing or clothing or um, careers or pro-social activity so it's this uh, we call it wraparound services providing holistic needs Um, but the other piece of like anti-racist and equitable and like I said I think you know it's easy for and once again I'm speaking from a man of privilege and I'm speaking from a white man it's easy for a white man of privilege to look at our young people and just like I said say just work harder or Racism doesn't exist, or these things, and and I'm just here to say really clearly, and not to, like, I don't want to argue with people, but I'm just, spend time with my young people, spend time um, in these communities, and you'll be given a different perspective of understanding how systems have oppressed my young people and their communities and their families, you know, how um, just so many different things that, once again, we could speak for hours, but how it hasn't been equitable for them. You know, and how, once again, I was born into a place, the way my skin looks and the way uh, of privilege that my family has, I've never had to ask these certain questions. And so we want to create a world where policies help our young people and don't hurt them. When a young man gets out of jail and he is given an ankle monitor, he didn't choose it, and then they say, This is adult. This isn't juvenile. But when the adult system says, now you have to pay $500 a month for that ankle monitor.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't know that.
1: And then you're saying, um, also, you need a job. And the young person is saying, well, I have a felony. Who's going to hire me? It's a violent felony. Who's going to hire me? But then if you don't pay your ankle monitor, then you're going to go back. Well, how am I supposed to pay for my ankle monitor? Right? It's like these systemic things that people don't understand that happens, um, that we need to change. You know, Even like the public defender system, our young people, uh, the DA is so good in every county, the best attorneys go to the DA and they railroad our young people. Our young people, they get demonized and they have a public defender that even if they're good, overworked. And so our young people have no shot with the justice system and the young people are required then to take a deal, because if they come in and say, you're going to get 20 years, or if you sign here, you'll get five. Well, the young person knows if I take this to trial, they're going to demonize me and talk about all about my record, all about my gang involvement, all about my history. They're going to call me an urban terrorist, which happens all the time. The jury's never going to believe me. So I better sign this. So now not only did I sign on the dotted line, now I have a felony. The DA, their record is 99% conviction rate, you know, and so there's certain systemic things that we want to see change, and so not only do we want to help with the healing, we want to help with like legislation and these other things, and I think the last thing is to the career piece, we're trying to help our young people be business owners and homeowners, and so we're trying to start our own businesses. Like we want to start a barbershop where we can hire young people. Awesome. You know, and they can provide a service, get a career, and then maybe they can branch off and start their own barbershop. So we want to start social enterprises that where we can directly hire our young people. Um, and the last thing is like I said, home ownership. Uh, things like gentrification and and these things harm our, our young people's communities. And and the way to reverse that is like home ownership. And once again, like when we talk about systemic wealth, we're like my family, I'm a, I'm privileged. My family's privileged from home ownership. That's been passed down. Our young people, a lot of their families have never owned homes. Yeah. So that wealth can't be passed down. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to like, how can we set them up to be homeowners, business owners? So anyways, um, I think that's the most concise way is like, just how do we, how do we help them and empower them to to change the worlds they live in and,
0: and our nation. So, and, and I'm just going to go a little bit over your clients. Um, 50% yep. of your clients have PTSD. Yep. 99% of your clients have mental health, health issues. Yep. 97% of your clients have had some kind of contact with the human services. And 85% of your clients have been in with gang involvement. Th- those are statistics that just don't give them much of a chance, does it? No. Is that a good way to say it? I'm it's not trying good, to
1: it's a good way to say it and that's why we're trying to change
0: it. Yeah. So in in the mental health let, let me ask you this, Preston, how much does drugs play into triggering mental health issues?
1: Mm, that's a great question. Um, no, it's the other way. It's self medication. Okay. So our young people almost always are self-medicating because of mental health struggles. Okay. So, um, there's a, there's a woman who's a scholar in, um, gang involved young people and her name's Georgia leap. She's out of UCLA. She talks a lot about self-medication for gang members where it's like, you know, I saw my best friend killed in front of me. I don't have the coping skills. I don't have the support system. I don't have a therapist who I can really talk about how this traumatized me. So what do I do? I go to drinking, I go to smoking, I go to popping pills, I go to robbing people, I go to stealing cars and then and, and I get involved in criminal activity. I mean, a young man I work with right now, he can speak very clearly to how his trauma influenced criminal activity and drug activity where mm-hmm. he says, I'm at a party, I'm, I'm like 14, best friends killed in front of me. So what do I do? I'm in a gang involved neighborhood. My best friend's killing from me. Now I'm always carrying a gun and I'm always using drugs because I don't know how to cope with it. Yeah. Yeah. So we talk about self medication. Um, you know, uh, meth is an upper for ADD and ADHD patients. You know, we're giving them typically, actually, we're giving them uppers, right? So we're giving them like Adderall. Well, a lot of kids on meth are self medicating for the ADD or ADHD, and they aren't receiving the proper medication they need, right? So it's so much of the mental health is being self medicated um, through, like I said, through drug usage. Um, and, and once again, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not the expert on this, um, but the majority of mentalists is not triggered by drugs in my opinion and there's kind of two schools of thought my opinion is that trauma triggers mental illness
0: okay yeah and it kind of always goes back to that trauma piece doesn't it yeah yeah and and i think we kind of touched on this a little bit but the trauma piece in most cases that you deal with was of no fault of the kid
1: Mm, yeah no
0: no fault. It's, it's mostly the fault of the adults in that kid's life.
1: The adult in the neighborhood. And, and that's where, you know, I don't, because a lot of people go back to family, you know, like it's the family's fault. I don't like going there either. Um, yeah. Right. The family is just similar to my young people. And yeah. like I said, for specifically, like let's take a community like Five Points in East Denver. So traditionally African-American community, um, in the 50s, 60s, it's known as the Harlem of the West. Well, that community is uh, has been oppressed for decades. I mean, they're 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 the community of redlining where African Americans couldn't live, they had to live in that section of the of the city. They couldn't live outside of it. So you redline them and and then you know, drugs come in, and then the war on drugs come in, and now you're taking, a lot of the the parents out of the house incarcerating them and so now a young person is a product of systemic issues like redlining and like drugs and war on drugs and all these things three strikes law and all of these actual policies And, and so then the young people it's because of those things that the family gets traumatized and the family now has mental illness and the family has addiction or gang involvement and then yes The family out of their trauma and pain, because they didn't get resourced or get healing, they're victimizing their children, but it's not the fault of the family, you know, so once again, it's this cycle, and and it's helping people, I think it's really, it's, it's trying to help people grow in empathy.